Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Transmissions from Scarif, a new Star Wars podcast created to bring you news, reviews, speculation, and more from all aspects of the galaxy. From comics to cartoons, I'll be giving you absolutely everything you need to know about this complex, tied-together universe we call Star Wars. I am your host, Kyle Spawn, and on this month's episode, the debut, episode one, Phantom Menace of a show, I'll be providing you guys with a full, in-depth analysis slash review of Rogue One. I can't think of a better way to kick off my very first podcast than to review this masterpiece of a film and hopefully cover all the good and the small amount of bad that is in the very first Star Wars story. Later on, I will also be sharing my thoughts on Catalyst, a Rogue One novel, and summarizing the various tie-ins and connections to the film for those of you who have not read it. And just a quick heads up before I begin the show, the sound quality may get a little bad at times considering this is my very first time podcasting, but as time goes on, I promise you I will get better. Just try to keep in mind, this is episode one, so hopefully I won't sound like Jar Jar. Alright, so before I dive into Rogue One, I just wanted to say, obviously, the rest of this podcast will contain spoilers, so if you have not seen Rogue One, please pause the podcast, reevaluate your life and what you're doing on a Star Wars podcast, And come back once you have watched it. Okay, so with the spoiler warning out of the way, I want to start this review by saying that the film was, of course, very, very different than anything we have ever seen in Star Wars. Now, I think this different was a good different, a refreshing different, and the film definitely felt new, and this was good in my opinion. This movie did not feel like an episodic film, but it did feel like Star Wars, which was good because I was a bit worried about it being a little bit too different and really just alienated. We were promised a gritty, dark film, and in the end, that's what we got, and it's exactly what I wanted from the movie. After the three-month reshoot news broke, I was a little nervous that the Disney executives were going to try to lighten it up, but it seems that the film was able to maintain its identity throughout the reshoots, and I don't think the reshoots really ruined the flow or the pacing at all. It seemed very complete to me. I've seen the film three times so far, and I must say I really, really enjoyed it, especially on the second and third viewings. I felt like the first viewing kind of left my head spinning, honestly, especially with the final act and the various activities that went down on Scarif. But after rewatching and really observing all the subtleties and deeply analyzing the plot, I think that Rogue One really holds up as a unique, fresh Star Wars film. It's better than The Force Awakens, in my opinion, especially in terms of the story. I think all three acts flowed very well, as I stated before, and the movie did a really good job of replicating the feel and the environment of A New Hope, especially in the rebellion-based scenes on Yavin 4 and the hallways of the Tantine 4 at the end of the movie. So as I try to break down this massive, jam-packed film, I'm going to try to stay as linear as possible. However, I'm going to skip over the opening scene and save that for the end of the show when I address Catalyst, since I feel that this scene is almost an epilogue to the book. And so my analysis will begin with the asteroid trading post where we first see Diego Luna's character, Cassian Andor. 
I forgot the name of this trading post, but I really love the design of it. It reminded me actually of something that we'd see in one of the comic books, and I really like how Lucasfilm tried to bring some new things throughout the entirety of Rogue One, especially in this scene here. You can tell right off the bat that Lucasfilm is not going to hold anything back with this film, and they're going to take a much less safe approach than the one they took with The Force Awakens. Right from the start, we see Cassian and Endor meet with an informant who I believe is part of Sagarera's rebel sect. After he informs Cassian about the cargo pilot deserter, they are caught by stormtroopers and Cassian is forced to shoot him since his arm is messed up and he is unable to climb. This is a really dark introduction to Cassian, and it really relays the message that not everything in the rebellion is about hope, peace, and kindness. This movie excels at establishing a gray area, which is very unique to the other films, which feature such stark contrast between good and evil. Now, I want to skip over to where Jin is being transported to the Wobani labor camp and what looks like a repurposed juggernaut tank from the Clone Wars. I think this is a very subtle, well-done Easter egg in the film. This is obviously just one of many Easter eggs. Some I liked, others I didn't. But of course, Gareth Edwards is a fan making this movie, so I expected it. I'm going to try to cover all of them, but this one is probably one of my favorites because of its subtlety, and I enjoy seeing remnants of the Republic shine through in the Empire. Now, I would really like to talk about Sagarera's group of rebels located on Jeddah, which I have nicknamed the Gangster Rebels. I love everything about these guys, and I think the character designs are absolutely tremendous. I especially love Edrio Tutubes, which is the creature who's like Saw second in command and speaks a different language for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. The breathing apparatus chest piece that he wears looks like it's a modified X-Wing pilot chest piece, which I think is awesome, and it makes sense since the Rebels have X-Wings, and you'd have to scrap something together, as most Rebels do. I also really liked the guy that had the black biker scout helmet. I thought that looked really great. I'm almost positive that it was spray-painted black, but it would be really cool if it was a Storm Commando helmet, which is a black scout trooper, although those troopers are no longer canon as far as I know. Now, I want to get into Saw Gerrera, and I have a lot to say about him. I think Forrest Whitaker played him very well, and with a different actor, his character could have came off a little silly at times, but Whitaker was definitely able to pull it off in my opinion. Obviously, Saw is very different than we've ever seen him before. He is broken mentally and physically, and that shows right from the start. He has presumably been fighting the good fight for several decades now, and because of this, he's become more machine than man now. Just like another little character in this movie I'll be talking about in a bit. I believe the original version of the film, he had a much greater presence. His whole, what will you do when they catch you speech did not make the final cut, unfortunately. But I like what we did get of him. I was just re-watching the Onderon arc of the Clone Wars, and I can see how his character could have become what we see in Rogue One over time. In the Clone Wars, he's not afraid to bring the fight to the city of Isis, even if it means harming civilians, and this foreshadows the way he runs his group of rebels in Rogue One. He is willing to sacrifice everything if it means fighting for something that he believes in. And in the Onderon arc, he does make an extreme sacrifice in the final episode. 
I don't want to spoil it if you have not seen the arc, but I will say it is a person that is very close to him. And those of you who have watched the Clone Wars know exactly what I'm talking about. Going back to reference the Clone Wars arc again, he did fight alongside Anakin Skywalker. And I think it's very interesting that they've almost ended up the same way, both are ruthless and similar in appearance. I like the breathing apparatus, which is obviously an homage to Vader. Saw has been hardened by war and also broken by it. And I really love the complexity of his character and the way that Forrest Whitaker is able to portray that in the movie. And while we're kind of on the topic of TV shows, it was just announced that Saw will indeed be making an appearance in Star Wars Rebels Season 3. It appears that he will be meeting the Ghost Crew on Geonosis to investigate what was being built there, which we know was the Death Star. This episode sounds great, and I can't wait to talk about it on the podcast. Also, it will be interesting to see how different Saw's character is two years before Rogue One. And to make things even better... Forrest Whitaker will be reprising his role as the hardcore rebel himself. This will be a great way to keep the continuity of the character throughout the transition from the movie to TV. Now some final things I want to point out about the gangster rebels and the entire Act 1 in general. I thought the tank raid was super cool, and I like the small rebel creature that was played by Warwick Davis. I thought seeing him get into the battle and kick some butt was pretty funny. I also really like how this film expands the Rebel Alliance. We've seen a little bit of this in Rebels as well with Fulcrum and the multiple divisions and how there are many different ways to actually rebel. Now, Saul's group is more terrorist-like, I believe, and I found Mon Mothma's line about how this group has caused them a lot of problems very interesting, and just their separation in general. I find it very cool how two groups that are trying to achieve the same thing can take just such different paths towards it, and I really think that they can expand upon what kind of caused Saw's group to break away from the Rebellion, as I think that the movie kind of set up that they were at one time together and similar, but they had a falling out. And I hope that we can explore this through different types of media, maybe a comic book, maybe a book, something like that. Saw's Band of Rebels really screams gray area to me, considering they're fighting against the Empire, but putting innocent lives at risk with little to no concern at the same time. So it really begs the questions, how much better are they than the Empire? And are they really trying to bring peace to the galaxy with this type of just guerrilla-style fighting? I also really like Jin Erso's reaction to her father's message. I thought this was definitely the best acting piece in the film, and it totally eased any doubt I might have had about Felicity Jones' acting ability. Rogue One is filled with very emotional scenes, and I feel like Felicity does a very good job of nailing every single one of them, and you can really feel Jin's emotions. But let's move on to dead people, and by dead people, I don't mean all of our heroes, I mean Tarkin, Peter Cushing. Back from the grave to have a role in Rogue One. Now, I was definitely not expecting him to have anything more than a small cameo in the film, and was presently surprised when I realized he had almost as much screen time as Krennic. 
I thought this was another bold move by Lucasfilm, and one that definitely pushes the boundaries of filmmaking, which the company is known for. I would say that Tarkin certainly looked believable, but you could definitely tell the character was CGI, especially when he is speaking and interacting with other characters. Overall, I admire the effort and think this is by far the best attempt that has ever been made to digitally recreate a person on screen. I think the Krennic-Tarkin-Power rivalry was great, and it was really nice seeing this. Now, this rivalry originates in Catalyst, so I'll be expanding upon it in that segment of the show. Moving on to the second act and Edu. Now, before the Ewing crashes on the planet is where I have my first problem with the film. So, Cassian is communicating with the Alliance and telling them they're flying to Edu, and his orders to kill Galen are reinforced. However, Cassian is told Galen's message, and he refuses to report back to the Rebellion with the information because, quote, they're too deep into Imperial territory, or something along those lines. Now, this makes no sense since he had just ceased communication with the Rebellion. Cassian could have just as easily re-established communication and relayed the message to the Rebellion. That way, if something went wrong on Edu, Galen's message would not be lost. The only way I can, can try to justify this is believing that Cassian doesn't think the Rebellion will believe the message since they don't have proof, and later on in the film we find out that he is correct. All in all, this is just a little thing and it's easy for me to overlook. I really liked the design of Edu, and Gareth Edwards recently told Fandango that this design was a tribute to Ridley Scott's Alien film, and it's meant to resemble the LV-426 planetoid seen in Alien. I think the rain on the planet combined with the darkness really set a really nice mood, and I can't gush enough about the cinematography of the film overall. There were some really beautiful shots and settings, especially in the third act on Scarif. I think the costume Jin wears on this planet is probably my favorite out of everything she wears in the movie. She is wearing a long black coat that almost looks like a poncho along with the rebel goggles on top of her hat. Also on Edu, we see Cassian is unable to pull the trigger to assassinate Galen. And I feel like this shows that there is still good in his character, despite the lack of morals we see in the beginning of the film. Another small thing I picked up on was that the logos on the suits worn by Galen's research team actually matched the ones on the kyber crystal crates that were hijacked by the gangster rebels. And this would make sense considering that these crystals were meant to be shipped from Jeddah to Edu. This is just another example of how much care was put into this film, and throughout the movie you can obviously tell that it was a labor of love from start to finish. Now, I want to talk about another very dramatic moment in the film, and this was Galen's death scene. Now, I think in this scene, Felicity Jones once again shines, and she does an amazing job. There's one shot in particular that I want to point out, and this is when Krennic is walking back to his shuttle to evacuate from the planet, and he looks at Galen's body lying on the ground, and for a split second, the lighting, it hits his face, and it just bathes him in red light, and it's just a really well-executed shot. Once again, I cannot gush enough about the cinematography in this movie, and this shot in particular really just 
sets Krennic up as this evil villain, and a similar technique was used in The Force Awakens when, of course, the sun is being consumed by Starkiller Base, and Kylo Ren's face becomes red when he is about to kill Han Solo. Another part that I thought was really cool on Edu was Jin almost getting blown away by the engines on Krennic's ship. This is a really unexpected moment, as you think everything's going to be fine once Krennic has left the battlefield. This is something we've never seen in Star Wars, but it really fits well and feels new, as many other aspects of this film do. It certainly makes sense that the Force, no pun intended, from the back of the craft would be extremely powerful, considering how much power it takes for a real space shuttle to get off the ground on Earth. Now, let's get into one of my favorite scenes from the movie, Vader on Mustafar in a freaking castle. I don't know how you get better than that. The Vader castle idea has been tossed around since 1979, and a lava planet was always the intended location. The Emperor's Palace was also going to be on a lava planet in early concept art by Ralph McQuarrie for Return of the Jedi. The visual guide for Rogue One by Pablo Hidalgo confirms that this castle is indeed located on the planet Mustafar, and the location was selected by Palpatine himself because he wants Vader to remember his hatred for Obi-Wan, his turn to the dark side, and his transformation into the Dark Lord of the Sith. The guy in the black robes that sent the internet ablaze with speculation turned out to simply be one of Vader's servants slash disciples, which I found kind of funny. It makes sense that Vader will be in a back to tank a lot, considering his body is so badly messed up and will never be fully healed no matter how much he tries. I wanted to see Hayden Christensen's face in the tank, and I thought this would be a really good place for Lucasfilm to tie together the prequels and the originals in terms of the man in the mask, but unfortunately that's not what we got. I picked up another great detail in my third viewing, and it happens when Krennic is waiting in what could be considered the lobby of the palace. The large door slowly opens up, and the shot is filmed facing Krennic, and if you watch the back wall, you can see the shadow of Vader looming largely behind Krennic. I love this detail, and believe it symbolizes how much more powerful Vader is compared to the small, meager Krennic. And we see him just towering over Krennic in most of the scenes that they have together. James Earl Jones, the voice of Vader in the originals, came back to voice Vader and delivers some really great lines, especially one of my favorite new lines of all time, Don't choke on your aspirations, director. He says this after he performs his iconic force choke, and this moment kind of felt like a mic drop to me. You can even see Krennic almost smiling when he looks up because he knows it was that good. I think just like Tarkin, the filmmakers were able to get Vader right, and this is absolutely not the last time I'll be talking about him in this episode. Okay, enough dark side, let's head over to the good guys on Yavin 4, where Jin's inspirational speech takes place in the infamous meeting room. This scene got me a little emotional in the first viewing, and I thought Jin's speech about hope was very, very good and touching. However, I can see where the rebellion leaders who are against the mission are coming from, considering the two people they are forced to believe have ties to the Empire, and there is no real proof 
just hope, even though rebellions are built on hope. I can also understand how ending the rebellion is also an option, considering the Empire has a weapon of such mass destruction. As one of the leaders on the council said, what chance does the rebellion actually have? Michael Giacchino's score really adds a lot of weight to this scene, and the music really flows with the scene and fits the tone of the situation perfectly. I definitely want to talk about the score a little bit more, but I think I'm going to save this for later on in the show, because right now I want to address some of the easter eggs that we find in the Yavin base. Jimmy Smith reprised his role as the Alderanian Senator Bail Organa in this film, and he references Obi-Wan and the thought to bring him into the fight should a civil war break out. Also, there are a variety of Star Wars Rebels references throughout the base. When Cassian, K2, and Jin are boarding the Ewing for Jeddah, the ghost is seen parked in the upper left-hand corner of an aerial shot. Also, Chopper can be seen on the left when the Rebel runs to interrupt Mon Mothma and tells her that Rogue One is headed for Scarif. The name General Syndulla can be heard over the loudspeaker as the Rogue One team is being assembled and prepared to leave. This has been confirmed by Dave Filoni, creator of Rebels and the Clone Wars, to be Captain of the Ghost, Hera Syndulla, and Filoni revealed that she has received a promotion to General before the events of Rogue One. A cameo that I almost knew was coming was R2 and 3PO, simply because it's a Star Wars tradition and I knew that Gareth Edwards, being the fanboy that he is, would not be able to waste the opportunity. So C-3PO and R2-D2 do maintain their perfect attendance in all eight of the Star Wars movies, and I really like the way they were incorporated. 3PO's line about them not being told about anything is 100% accurate, of something he would definitely say, and I was a little bit nervous that the creators would try to squeeze them into some place that they really shouldn't have been, which is exactly what I felt happened with Ponda Baba and Dr. Evazan, whom I believe I forgot to mention. These guys run into Jin on Jeddah, and they are the duo that gave Luke a hard time at the Moss Eisley Cantina. The timeline is weird for these two, considering they would need to be in a bar at Tatooine only a couple days after this event, and also we see that the Jeddah city was destroyed merely a few hours after we see them bump into Jin in the movie. Also, their appearances are not as accurate to episode 4 as they should be. Ponda Baba's head is way too large, and Dr. Evazon looks very skinny and just very different than the way he appears in episode 4. So obviously, in the time period of a couple days, they underwent some major plastic surgery before they appeared in the Moss Eisley Cantina in episode 4. Okay, so let's move into the third and final act of Rogue One. This just may be my favorite third act of any Star Wars film because of its great blend of many Star Wars elements. It features space battles, ground battles, beautiful cinematography, and an absolutely thrilling last 15 minutes. So let's start with our planet, the Tropical Paradise Imperial Data Storage Facility of Scarif. Right away, I fell in love with the idea of such a gruesome fight in paradise and the blending together of heaven and hell. 
The cinematography of the third act is just incredible, and I've said this about almost every location, but Scarif more than anything. The beauty of the location is shown in almost every shot, and I love the idea of stormtroopers in the water. This is another one of those ideas I was talking about that's Star Wars, and it's new and fresh and unlike anything we've ever seen. Now, I want to talk Admiral Raddus and the Rebel Fleet. I love the design and colors of the Mon Calamari aboard the capital ship, but the different colors don't make a lot of sense to me considering we only saw the traditional orangish colors when we visited the planet of Mon Cala in the Clone Wars TV show. So I don't know how they become colored like this, but I'm hoping we'll get an answer somewhere. It's unfortunate that Admiral Raddus most likely perishes on his ship since they are not able to escape Vader because the ship has been damaged too badly. Almost the entire Rebel fleet shows up to the battle, and I'm assuming this is because when Raddus says he's going to fight, everyone just follows him since he's obviously a very influential figure, and they don't want to look like cowards. Among the group of ships that showed up to fight in the Battle of Scarif, we see the Blue Squadron of X-Wings, which make an appearance in the Vader Down comics. These guys aren't at the Battle of Yavin, so we know things did not go too well for them on Scarif. We also see the Alderanian Hammerhead cruisers that are delivered to the Rebels by Princess Leia in a Star Wars Rebels episode, which I thought was another awesome tie-in. And these cruisers actually turn out to be the MVPs of the movie, considering one of them is able to take out the shield by actually pushing one Star Destroyer into another and then onto the shield. This is yet again another fresh new idea that I loved seeing in the movie, especially as Giacchino's score swells and the visuals that are produced are nothing short of magnificent. The ghost is also present in the space battle, but we get nothing more than a few passing glances at it. I was really hoping for a short cameo where the camera just flashes to the cockpit of the ghost and we see Hera, Sabine, and maybe a couple others, but I can see why they didn't include this since they didn't want to spoil anything in Who Survives, as we are still two years away from Rogue One in the Rebels story. Another great thing in the space battle was some actual footage from the 1970s made it into the movie. Red and Golden Squadrons, which were part of the Death Star attack, are both present in the movie, and cockpit footage of both Gold Leader and Red Leader are reused in the movie, which is a really nice add-in. Also, we see the original Red 5 perish during the battle, which creates a space that is filled by Luke Skywalker in Episode 4, and he adopts the callsign. Overall, I thought the space battle was terrific. I loved Admiral Raddus and his ship, and I still can't believe how much the CGI has advanced, and it makes Star Wars, especially things such as space battles, look more realistic than ever. And if there isn't anything that can utilize modern day film technology, it's definitely Star Wars. Let's shift focus to the ground, where Rogue One is on the planet and fighting for the plans. When Jin and Cassian steal disguises from the inspection crew, it is an obvious reference to Han and Luke in the Stormtrooper outfits in A New Hope. But what doesn't add up is that the original Imperial officer was clean-shaven and completely different in appearance than Diego Luna, but the person controlling the door didn't notice at all, along with the fact that there is now a large droid with them that wasn't there a second ago. I guess the guy was just doing his job, being a door opener, and wasn't paying any attention, but still, you'd think that anyone with eyes would be able to tell something was up. 
in the end, this guy's lack of focus really started a chain reaction, if you think about it, that ultimately led to the destruction of the Empire, and he'll probably never know it since he gets blown up in a couple hours because of his stupidity. Now, I don't know if this was on purpose or not, but the elevator-like thing that moves the trio into the actual Scarif base draws a strong resemblance to the Incredibles Pixar film, where there is a similar mechanism on a tropical island. This actually could have been purposeful, considering Disney's ownership of the two companies, and Michael Giacchino also did the score for The Incredibles. Now, I have no idea what would lead me to associate a Pixar animated movie with Star Wars, but I am a pretty big Disney fan as well, so I guess it just crossed my mind. When they get into the actual base, Cassian tells K2, you know what to do, and I assume this just meant to pull an R2 and plug into one of the communication terminals. But he actually hacks into another Enforcer droid's mind and like consumes their soul. Which I thought was a pretty cool, but it would be a little difficult to obtain one of these droids without causing a scene. And it would be much, much easier to just simply plug in and receive all the information about the base. The first time I watched the movie, I was a little confused about how the trio was going to transmit the plans, but after further viewings, I was able to understand it better. Once K2 located where the plans were in the data pillar, I believe that what they were trying to do was just send them from the booth that K2SO was operating at. Unfortunately, stormtroopers eventually identify that the rebels have infiltrated the data vault, and before K2SO meets his unfortunate end, he locks them into the vault to protect them and informs them of the manual way at the top of the tower. One of the file names they stumble upon as they are searching for the plans was a Black Saber, which may or may not be a reference to the Mandalorian weapon that is now in the hands of Sabine from Star Wars Rebels. Both Jin and Cassian are able to make a very difficult jump onto the actual data pillar, and I find this might be bordering believability. Also, when Jin is climbing onto the top of the tower, the opening and closing door that she has to climb through makes absolutely no sense except to add drama and tension to the scene. I think that this, along with the K2SO cannibalism, was a little unnecessary and could have been simplified or cut. The battle that rages outside the base is an attempt to draw out the Imperial garrison and occupy Imperial forces and they are successful in doing this. Then, after this, their next objective is to open a connection with the fleet to let them know they will be receiving the transmissions. This process is actually a little complicated, and when I first watched the movie, I was a little bit confused with this part as well. So what Bodhi needs to do to establish a secure connection to the fleet is connect a cable from a port on the planet to the cargo ship, and then he also needs the rebel troopers to turn on a master switch that would open up all communication channels, including the one necessary to contact Radis's flagship. Baze and Chur, along with their troopers, fight their way to the master switch, but get cornered and can't make their way to activate the actual switch. 
And then the most spiritual, force-related part of the movie, right up there as one of my favorite scenes in the film, plays out. Chirrut suddenly gets up from the cover, calmly walks towards the switch, chanting his line, I am one with the force, the force is with me. You can hear the uh, desperation in Beza's voice as he begs his best friend to come back, and the stormtrooper's blaster bolts fly all around him, destroying the beach. The cinematography in this scene is just breathtaking, with the beach and all the chaos surrounding Chirrut, who is calmed, central, and at peace, the force protecting him. He makes it to the switch, and with the help of the force, he is able to activate the correct lever, and after this, his goal is accomplished, and he is blown up. I took Chirrut's death to be the force ceasing to protect him after he has completed his task, as the force ultimately wants them to be successful, and works its magic accordingly to make this happen. After True becomes one with the Force, Baze finally starts to have faith in the Force once again and recites his fallen brother's lines as he straight up murders almost all of the Death Troopers. I was actually kind of disappointed with how easily the Death Troopers were taken care of considering how heavily they were involved in the marketing of the movie. In fact, a lot of the marketing for this film was not very accurate considering almost half of the shots in the trailers didn't make the final cut after the reshoots. I was a little disappointed that some shots and lines that had already become iconic, such as Ira Bell and Krennic walking through the water with the dead stormtroopers, were not in the movie, but overall I'm satisfied with the finished product. Finishing up Baze's exit with a bang, I love how he starts saying the force line as he cocks his gun and he just looks like he's going to kick butt, which he does, running through the Death Troopers until one of them sets off a grenade and he is blown to bits while looking at Chirrut's body. This Baze scene was obviously a suicide walk and I love how connected him and Chirrut were to the point where he can't live without him and just chooses to avenge Chirrut any way he can. But on to the next death, which is Bodhi Rook. He has to plug the cable into the ship manually and the fight is raging all around him. He takes a route that allows him to have a cover from the blasters, but eventually reaches the ship and realizes that the cable is not long enough to reach the actual cargo ship from the station on the beach. He realizes that he is going to have to be brave and run in a straight line to the ship as fast as he can, risking his life to get there, and he does so just as the rebel soldiers are falling all around him. Right when he is finished delivering his message to the Rebellion, a shore trooper tosses a grenade into the ship, and this blows up him and the entire ship. Just like Chirrut, he dies exactly after he completes the task that he is meant to do, but I feel like his death was more rushed and unexpected. But this is how it usually happens when in an intense battle, and... His character arc is finished just as he is. There's only one thing I'm not sure about in the ground battle, and that's the AT-ACTs. 
Now, these are not standard AT-ATs like we see in Empire Strikes Back. These are actually all-terrain, all-cargo transports. These walkers might make sense on a planet like Jeddah since they're transporting the crystals, but I don't really understand why they're necessary on Scarif. As far as I know, nothing major is being built or exported, so regular AT-ATs should work just fine. Personally, I think the new design was probably just a money grab by Disney. Another problem with them is that you would assume these things are built to protect the cargo they're transporting, not purposefully engage in offensive combat. If the Empire really did have a reason to need the AT-ACTs, couldn't they just have a separate set of ADATs for defense? I can try to rationalize the ADAX by telling myself that they might be expanding the base and building more data structures, but all in all, they seem really out of place and standard ADATs would have made much more sense. It is possible that the walkers are used to move large amounts of data, but this idea is still kind of flimsy. Also, we get a very brief look into the cockpit of one of these machines, and the pilots operating it are wearing what almost looks like a shore trooper helmet that's been painted white. This feels lazy, and it's sad because I really liked all the other new trooper designs. This is another thing that I think they could have just kept simple and brought back the original ADAT pilot armor. As I mentioned, I really did think the rest of the new trooper designs looked great, my favorite probably being the Death Trooper, just because of how sleek and personalized their armor is. Their communication thing that's on their belts is almost the same that we see Vader have, which I thought was interesting. The way they talk to each other in the movie was really strange to me. I don't know if it was a different language or just bad sound quality, but it sounded very garbled and almost robotic. This has me questioning whether or not the troopers were actually human, considering they are also very tall. I like the shore trooper helmet design as well, and it looks like a variation of the scout trooper. The color of their armor on the surrounding beach looked really nice. The new tank trooper in the Jeddah raid scene I liked, but it was very different than any designs we've ever seen, and I'm wondering why the Empire went through the trouble to create such a new design for troopers that don't seem very important. Throughout the original trilogy, we see that most of the different pilot trooper variations resemble the standard stormtrooper, such as the TIE pilot and the ADAP pilot I had mentioned a little bit earlier. So I think it's time to finally address the last 15 minutes of the movie and that ending that's got everyone talking. Cassian comes back just in time to save Jin from director Krennic, which I found a little cheesy, but it definitely was a shocking moment on my first watch. Tarkin brings the Death Star to Scarif to avoid the plans getting out, and yet to suspend disbelief once again when Jin knows exactly how to reposition the dish, and let me just say, whoever designed the manual transmitter was an idiot. Seriously, who thinks to have the repositioner hanging off the side of the extremely high tower? Why couldn't it just be right next to the other controls? This was another design that was only intended to create tension and drama. The only reason I can think of why it would be necessary to have the dish mover away from the other controls is so you can see the dish move in position, but this is just another reach. I have to praise the score one more time because I really think it makes the end of the movie. The music takes over as we see the finale on Scarif and it plays out almost like a dream sequence. The score is both hopeful and somber at the same time and it's a beautiful combination. 
The Rogue One team succeeds in their mission, and Radice's ship receives the transmissions from Scarif, and somewhere, someplace, a podcast name was born. Tarkin fires on the planet, destroying the entire facility. This is a really big detriment to the Empire, considering Scarif seemed very important and held all Imperial records, but Tarkin is just trying to get what he wants, which is the destruction of the Rebels, keeping the plans a secret, and, of course, most of all, killing Krennic. Taking him out guarantees his spot as the administrator of the battle station and ends a feud between the two that has spanned several years at this point. Though I'm not sure that the payoff is great enough to be destroying their important base, but I guess desperate times do call for desperate measures. Another amazing shot in the movie comes as Krennic is gazing up at his creation, the thing that he devoted his life to, finishing him off, the Death Star. The way he looks at it is almost a face of awe and appreciation. He probably would prefer to see his magnificent achievement finish him off as he was dying anyway. So much is added to this shot from reading Catalyst as you really see how hard he worked to make the Death Star become a reality. By the way the movie acts, you just know that Jin and Cassian have no hope to make it out alive after they send the plans, and they know this as well. I thought their ending was nice, and I'm actually glad they didn't kiss, and that the filmmakers toned down the romanticism between the two. I actually thought the film was about to end when the two get swallowed up by the explosion, but then we get the icing on the cake as the executor, Vader's destroyer, drops out of hyperspace. In the following scene, all of our hopes and dreams are recognized. We get to see Vader at his fullest potential on the big screen, and it is absolutely jaw-dropping. Every time I see it, I get goosebumps as Vader ignites his saber and just annihilates the rebels. This scene parallels the beginning of A New Hope, where the fleet troopers are once again forced to wait, weapons drawn, but it is the stormtroopers who attack in the original film from 1977. The way Vader ignites his saber is the same way it's done in episode 4, almost exactly, when he duels Obi-Wan. The only little problem I have is that the guy with the plans is yelling to take them and pushing it through the door for several seconds, and if Vader can slam someone on the roof, he should be more than able to use the force to take the plans back. But it was dark, and there was a lot going on, so I'll let it slide. I saw Rogue One for the first time at one of those big IMAX theaters, and I think this made the scene even more perfectly chaotic and crazy, and you can feel the desperation and terror from the way Gareth Edwards positions the camera. There's some scenes in all of Gareth's movies where he films from the perspective of someone actually in the middle of the action, and this is one of those scenes which works perfectly. In Alexander Freed's novelization of the movie, it explains why the Tantive IV was docked on Admiral Radish's ship, and this is because it was not spaceworthy due to damage in a previous mission. The novel explains that aboard the ship, engineers desperately try to fix the problems during the hyperspace journey to Scarif. They attempt to make it suitable to fight, since the Rebellion needs all the help it can get. The repairs are completed just as the plans are handed off to the ship. This still doesn't explain why Leia was there in the first place, since Bale tells Mon Mothma that he's going to send her to find Obi-Wan. The way I see it, Leia was probably told to stay on Yavin, but being that she is young and most likely wants to get into the action and help the Rebellion in any way she can, so she gets on board the Tantive Four. Now, for why she takes the plans to Tatooine, it could be because the hyperdrive may not be suitable to make it all the way to Alderaan, or she just made a shorter jump to Tatooine since the Executor may have caught up to her and she knows Obi-Wan can help her. The de Carrie Fisher we see in the final scene of the movie 
was not great in my opinion. She looked okay from the side, but when we get the full view of her face, it's much wider than it should be, and I could almost see the older Carrie Fisher underneath all the effects. They should have just stuck to the side shots and avoided the close-up facial shot, as this would have been a little more convincing, but it's still very cool that she had a cameo in the movie. I have seen A New Hope since I've watched Rogue One, and the two tied together almost seamlessly, especially in the opening acts and the scenes on the Tantive Four. We see the fleet troopers run through the cruiser in Rogue One and in A New Hope, and the footage is very close to identical. It's a testimony to just how successful the Star Wars franchise is that a movie has been made in 2016 that is a prequel to a movie released 39 years earlier and I'm sure Uncle George is very proud of the phenomenon that his idea has become despite selling his company to the white slavers. One thing I must say is that Leia's diplomatic mission excuse to Vader is even more BS than ever considering he literally watched them leave the battle with his own eyes but besides that there's nothing too contradictory to Rogue One in episode 4. Someone pointed out online that there's actually an empty seat in the Death Star boardroom and that this could have been Krennic's seat. I love this happy coincidence and I hope that it'll become part of the official canon. Now before I move over to the Catalyst book, I just wanted to run through the main heroes in the movie and talk a little bit about each one. I need to start by saying that Rogue One is also different than the Saga films because this movie stands alone and therefore only has so much time to make us care about the characters. The other movies have an entire trilogy, and sometimes even more, to develop certain characters, and what makes it even harder for Rogue One is that it has a lot of characters, and giving them equal screen time is difficult. That being said, I thought every member of the team was well written throughout the movie, especially the standout characters to me, which were K2SO and Chirrut Imwe. K2 has been reprogrammed almost haphazardly by the Rebellion, and one of the effects of his reprogramming is that he says whatever comes into his circuits. He's Cassian's sidekick, and he provides much-needed humor to an otherwise dark installment in the franchise. I really liked when we see another Enforcer droid at Scarif, and you see how uptight and straight it's walking, and then the camera moves over to K2, who's so loose and flimsy with his motions, and it really conveys his individuality. ILM, the special effects group, manages to get an impressive amount of emotion into a droid whose mouth does not move, and they do this solely by his eye movement, which must have been very difficult. The best part about K2SO's innocent humor is that he doesn't realize he's being funny, it's just his nature. I think I'm going to clump Chura and Baze together because they're almost always a package. When we meet them on Jeddah, Cassian tells Jin that they used to be the Guardians of the Wills, which were a group meant to protect the ancient Jedi Temple in the Holy City. After the Imperial occupation, they were forced to leave and can no longer defend the Temple from the Imperials who seek to mine the Kyber Crystals that are inside the Temple. The Wills are actually a reference to George Lucas's original Star Wars script entitled Adventures of Luke Starkiller, as taken from the Journal of the Wills, the Wills being similar to what Lucas later renamed the Force. After seeing the treachery of the Empire, Baze becomes cynical about the Force and loses his faith. Baze is meant to be the complete opposite to Chirrut, who is extremely spiritual, while Baze relies on his sweet gun and not the Force. As a wise man once said, 
Pokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side, kid. And I'm sure Baze would agree with this statement. The two balance each other out, like yin and yang, and after Chira dies, Baze once again finds the force through his friend. Donnie Yen, who plays Chirrut, unleashes some amazing martial arts on Jetta, and I wish we could have got more of that throughout the movie. Moving on to Cassian Andor, who is presumably the rebel spy that is accredited with stealing the Death Star plans in A New Hope's opening crawl. He obviously has had a very rough past, and he says that he's been fighting since he was six. He's willing to do some pretty bad things for the rebellion, and this is probably because of his hard upbringing. In the end, the good in him shines out in certain moments, and I liked his character, and I think it's awesome that he got to keep his accent. Jin Erso is the main heroine of the film, and therefore I feel that it is only appropriate to conclude my character analysis with her. She is tied to the Empire because of her father, Galen Erso, who is critical to the creation of the Death Star superweapon. He was taken by the Empire because of this. Jin is raised by Saw Gerrera, who may not have been the best adopted father in the galaxy, but this galaxy has a history of bad fathers. Hey, if there's one thing Saw did teach her, it was definitely how to kick butt. Unfortunately, he was forced to abandon her when she was 16, because word was spreading amongst the rebels that she was the daughter of an imperial scientist. This leads to Jin being forced to break the rules to stay alive, and eventually she winds up in prison, where we first meet her in the start of the movie. Jin may be feisty and rebellious, but she also has good morals, and her character transforms from just trying to get along and not caring, to realizing what is right and deciding to fight for what she believes in. It's too bad that this is probably the last we will ever see of Jin, except if we get something like a comic series, because I really enjoyed her personality, and I think that Felicity Jones definitely portrays her character very well. The final things I have to say before we get into Catalyst pertain to Michael Giacchino's score. Now, legendary composer John Williams is getting up there in age, and I think Lucasfilm is grooming Giacchino to take his place after he retires. As I've said before, I enjoyed the music, and I thought it was a nice blend of new and old, and provided a good balance, which I was worried about and had fears that he would rely way too heavily on the older themes. Giacchino came in late in the game, and if I'm remembering correctly, he only had about four months to get all of this done, and I think he did a really nice job with the time he had. This guy did the music for Lost, which is where I know him from, as I am a big fan of that show, which he did really good work for. So I knew what he was capable of, and he really lived up to my expectations. He delivers some great sweets for the Imperials and Jin, which I thought were really well done, but my favorite piece by far was from the end, titled Your Father Would Be Proud, which I had talked about earlier. And with that, let's move on to the next segment. We're not done yet. Catalyst, a Rogue One novel. This book is a must-read in my opinion and gives some great backstory that really adds a lot of depth to a lot of things in Rogue One. The book spans from the Clone Wars all the way into just a couple years before Rogue One and highlights Krennic and the creation of the Death Star, along with Krennic's relationship to Grand Moff Tarkin and Galen Erso. 
I'm going to give an attempt at a brief summary and then tie it into the beginning of Rogue One. So, Galen Erso is a genius, and he specializes in kyber crystal research. He looks for ways to harness the power of the crystal and turn it into energy, which he can transport to planets that are in need. He starts working for the company Zerpin on the planet Vault in the Outer Rim, accompanied by his wife Lyra, who is pregnant with their daughter, Jin. Galen is strongly against the Clone Wars, which are raging across the galaxy. The planet he is working on is controlled by the Republic until it is taken over by the Separatists, who try to get him to work for them. He refuses and is thus imprisoned. His friend backed at the Gifted Academy, which could be considered the Harvard of the Star Wars universe, Orson Krennic, comes and rescues Galen from his imprisonment, and Galen feels indebted to him. This is all part of Krennic's power play to gain the Emperor's favor, as recruiting Galen into the Death Star project would be a huge plus for the creation of the superweapon. The book sets up Krennic's character as extremely ambitious, almost to the point where it is detrimental. His specialty is manipulating people and getting them to do what he wants, and it's fascinating seeing him analyze people's character in the novel. He's not particularly talented in any specific area, but he has a goal and he feels that he is a good leader. One that might one day be able to actually take control of this proposed superweapon. He starts off as an officer in the Army Corps of Engineers, but he is then signed on as a supervisor for the Celestial Power Project, which is the codename for the Death Star Project. Galen is very stubborn about choosing a side in the war and is focused on using all of his research to strictly help people, not harm them. Krennic realizes it's going to take a while to get to him, so he designs a long game and in the end is able to convince Galen to work in the project Celestial Power by telling him a completely false story about what the group is trying to do. He tells Galen that it's the Emperor's dream to be able to provide energy to all planets and civilizations throughout the galaxy, and Galen buys it. Now, Krennic has still made little progress creating the actual laser of this magnitude, so he convinces Galen by giving him his own state-of-the-art facility and access to all the kyber crystals he could possibly dream of. This is huge for Galen, considering the crystals were extremely hard to come by when the Jedi were around. But after their removal, Orson gives Galen whatever he needs. The only thing Galen needs to do is submit his research to Krennic, while he believes that Krennic is in the process of putting his studies to good use, when actually he is sending all of his notes to a separate research facility that is attempting to weaponize everything that he has done. In an interesting subplot, a smuggler named Haas Abit is hired by Krennic to provide illegal, off-the-record mining supplies to planets in order to extract the massive amount of materials necessary to construct the space station. Now, since the Death Star project is so secretive, they cannot have any type of records whatsoever 
since only a select few people know what is actually being created by Director Krennic. This smuggler was the same guy that was hired by Director Krennic to get the Ursos off of Vault way back in the Clone Wars. Lyra is starting to question what Galen's research is going towards, and right from the start, she is skeptical of Galen's friendship with Krennic and what he wants Galen to do. Krennic has their entire house being recorded, so he is able to hear Lyra's concerns and realizes she may be a threat. Since Lyra Urso used to scout out locations that may contain kyber crystals before Jin arrived, Krennic offers her a job to scout out a planet for a couple months. This is to keep Galen less distracted from his work and to provide separation between the couple. While Lyra's away, Krennic asks Galen to push even harder into the crystals to create even more energy than before, and Galen assumes this is because his work just hasn't been good enough, which really inspires him to try harder than ever before. Little does he know that the real reason that Krennic is asking this is because they need even more power than expected, and even more power than... Galen is currently providing them. Haas Abed is hired once again by Krennic to bring Jin and Lyra to this planet, and his job is to report back to Krennic on everything that Lyra is doing, so he's able to analyze her and figure out if she's going to be a problem and needs to be removed. Throughout the trip, Haas grows fond of both Lyra and Jin, and they form a special friendship. On their way back, they end up taking a detour and visiting some of the planets that Haas has delivered the tools to, and both of these planets are nearly completely ruined. This really has a strong effect on Haas, as he thought that it was simply another job, but he was very wrong. After he realizes just exactly what he has done, he immediately begins to plan to make things right. This leads to him getting into cahoots with none other than Saw Gerrera. Through a series of events, Lyra and Galen begin to get suspicious about what the research is being used for, and eventually they discover the dark truth. Haas ends up getting captured by Tarkin while fighting alongside Saw, but he actually lets him go free under one condition. He contacts Lyra and tells her that he has a plan to allow them to escape from the facility on Coruscant. At this point, Krennic won't let Galen just walk away, especially now that he believes they know about the real secrets of the project. Tarkin is willing to lose Haas Abit just to have an opportunity for Director Krennic to lose his number one scientist, as he believes that this will make him lose favor with the Emperor and thus have his role downgraded. Since Krennic had to use so many Imperial resources just to get Galen to begin work on the project. So Tarkin contacts Krennic and he warns them that Haas has escaped and that they intercepted transmissions from his ship that he is planning to get the Ursos away from the facility and he also tells them where they will be picked up from the stolen transmissions. So Krennic arrives at the scheduled location, and he finds Haas, but the Ursos never arrive. Instead, Haas called up Saw to get them off of Coruscant, 
while Krennic is caught in a diversion with Haas Abit. So Saw meets with the Ursos and they become friends after he pilots them to the isolated world of Lamu, which we see in the opening scene of Rogue One. Saw must have made a plan as to what they're going to do to respond when Krennic finds them because they know eventually he will find Galen since he is way too important. And in the opening scene of Rogue One, Lyra calls up Saw and he says, you know what to do. Catalyst excels at building up the character of Orson Krennic and really establishes the fact that he will do anything to get to the top. Tarkin and Krennic don't get along right away as Tarkin does not appreciate all the setbacks that Krennic has gone through in the creation of this Death Star. Krennic convinces Poggle the Lesser from Attack of the Clones to use his massive Geonosian population to actually build the Death Star for the Republic and not the Separatists. This ends up backfiring on him because after several months of preparation and work, Poggle has all of his minions destroy everything that they have done and leaves Geonosis to return to the side of Count Dooku. In the opening Rogue One scene, Lyra is shot by Krennic and killed, and he dispenses from the whole friendship tactic. Him and Lyra have disliked each other from the beginning, and Lyra saw through his lies very early. In the book, Lyra is shown to be much more spiritual than Galen, and they are opposites in the fact that Galen is more science, while Lyra is more spirit. This is also shown in the movie when she gifts Jin with a kyber crystal before she is about to die. And that is all I have for this month's episode. You can expect this podcast to release new episodes every three to four weeks, depending on what's happening in the Star Wars culture. And on next month's episode, I will most likely be talking some Star Wars comics, and I will also be chatting about the Great Rebels episodes we have coming up in January. If you liked the episode, I have an enormous favor to ask of you. As you know, this podcast is currently a newborn baby, and the way for this baby to grow is through iTunes reviews, as this will impact where it shows up in searches. I would be extremely grateful if you could just take 30 seconds of your time to submit a 5-star review as this will greatly increase the listener fanbase of the show. Also, if you have any Star Wars questions, comments, or concerns, you can feel free to write into the podcast at transmissionsfromscarif at gmail.com, all lowercase letters. I will be trying my best to answer your email on the show. You can also find the podcast on social media. It is on both Twitter and Instagram at transmissionsfromscarifpod, no spaces or underscores. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you have a wonderful new year and a great rest of the holiday season, no matter what you celebrate. Of course, this podcast would not be finished without me wishing you guys a happy life day. Thanks again for spending an hour of your time, which I know is minimal, to listen to me talk, and may the force be with you. This part is over.